Alright, we'll pray and we'll jump into Daniel chapter 5. Father, I just thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you're a, a God who is in control. And we're going to see that today as we go through uh, this chapter. And Lord, you give us all a choice. We can either humble ourselves and accept you, or we can go our own way and face the writing on the wall. So I just pray that even as Christians, that we can humble ourselves and not have to see the writing on the wall, the writing of discipline for us Christians in doing the things that we shouldn't be doing. And I just pray that you help us to be like Nebuchadnezzar who humbled himself and recognized that there is one who in heaven who appoints men and who is in control of things. So help us to be wise, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time in chapter 4, we saw Nebuchadnezzar humbled by God. He became like a beast, like a cow, and he ate grass for seven years. And in the records, the Babylonian records, I read that there's no record of any activity from Nebuchadnezzar for seven years. And that's easily explained by the Bible. So God successfully dealt with Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And he learnt that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That's verse 32 of chapter 4. So that's his lesson. The Most High rules in the kingdom of... Where? The kingdom of men. Who rules in this earth? Who's ultimately in control? God. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Yes, he rules in the kingdom of heaven, but he also rules here. So who's in charge of all the circumstances that we find ourselves in? God. Yeah. So there's nothing that happens that is not out of God's control. He does everything with a reason and for a purpose. And he does it with love. It's all for us. It's not against us. What does Romans say? If God is for us, then who can be against us? So now... There's nothing in the Bible that's ever accident. Now we hear the contrasting uh, response to God's mercy, and that is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, who also has a problem with pride, but he refused to humble himself, despite knowing what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He also exalted himself above the one true God when he got the gold and silver cups from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, and Belshazzar gets these cups and starts to worship with these cups, worship the gods of wood and stone. And of course, it's from this chapter in Daniel we get the phrase, the writing is on the wall. Now, in Daniel 5, 22 to 23, but you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. So as an analogy, as a picture, we see the saved and the unsaved. The saved have humbled themselves, and the unsaved have not humbled themselves. They are lifting up their heart against the Lord of heaven. And in the Lamb book, there's a picture of Satan, and he's like, got his fist in the air, and he's screaming at God. He's in rebellion against God. And that's true for everybody who is not saved. They are enemies of God in rebellion against God. Romans 3 says, there is no one who seeks God. They have all gone astray. So the context is the year is 539 BC. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead and gone for about 20 years. When he died, 
basically his son-in-law, Nabonidus. He went away from the city, engaged in military conflicts, and because he was away so much, he turned over the day-to-day operations of the kingdom to his son, Belshazzar, and that's why Belshazzar is called the king of Babylon. He's not actually the high king, he's the second in charge. So Babylon was thought to be invincible. It was surrounded by these huge walls, which I'll tell you about later. And it's said that they had supplies for 20 years. So they could be under siege for 20 years and still survive. And it seems that at this point in time, the Medes and the Persians are attacking. But Belshazzar is so confident in his walled city that he decides to throw a party. Let's read. We're going to read through chapter 5 of Daniel. It says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, that's Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought out from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, 
that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty glory and honor and because of the majesty that he gave him all peoples nations and languages trembled and feared before him whomever he wished he executed whomever he wished he kept alive whomever he wished he set up and whomever he wished he put down but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride he was disposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him Then he was driven from the sons of men, his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wife and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written, Meaning, many tekel a person. This is the interpretation of each word, Meaning, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting, a person. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So, what we have is the Medes and Persians making this military alliance and attacking Babylon. Now, it could be that they've already defeated the army, but we're not sure uh, the timing of that, whether they defeated the army before or after. But the year is 539. The Medes and Persians have formed this alliance, and they think they can destroy Babylon. You'd have to be crazy to try and go against Babylon. And that's what Belshazzar thought too. He made this feast. He's being surrounded by these armies and he makes a feast and he drinks wine in the presence of the thousand. And I reckon, and this is what other people think too, but it's probably a show of strength to the Medes and Persians who are surrounding the city. We don't need to fight or fast in fear. Let's feast instead. When he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. So this is from when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem all those years ago. 60-something years ago at this point. 
So when it says his father Nebuchadnezzar, in that culture, his father could also be the grandfather or the great-grandfather. So, you know, father is a multi-generational term. Now, either Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather through his mother's side or he was Belshazzar's father in the sense of having previously occupied the throne. And either way in that culture is true. Okay, the second part of verse 2, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the vessels which had been in the temple of God, and they all drank wine from them, praising these false gods. Now, the men and the women together, drinking wine, what do you think is happening? Don't think about it too much. It's not good, okay? Sexual immorality, all that kind of stuff. It's just like worldly parties. Nothing has changed. This Babylon is a picture of the world, and that's what people do even today. Now, Belshazzar the king, as I was saying before, there was a bit more to this. If you're interested, I can tell you. There's a historian called Barosus. Now, Nebuchadnezzar reigned 43 years. His son, Evil Merodach, would you like to be called that? Evil Merodach? Um, he's described in a couple of passages in the Bible. Uh, he ruled for two years, but he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, Neriglasa, because he was bad. Neriglasa, he's also mentioned in the Bible, ruled for four years until he died a natural death. And his son, oh, you love this name, Laborosaurocod, <laughs> sounds like a type of dinosaur. Only a child, this guy, only a child, and not very good in the head. He was diminished mental capacity, a bit retarded. And he was beaten to death after nine months by a gang of conspirators because they wanted someone else to be king. And the conspirators appointed Nabonidus, one of their gang, to be the king. And he ruled until Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon. I just went through that because you look at what's happening in politics today and it's just the same, you know, people are getting beat up, cooped, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, for those Bible critics, for a long time, the archaeologists knew about Nabonidus, but they didn't know about Belshazzar being king. And so I said, ah, typical story, the Bible's not right, see, Archaeology has shown the Bible to be incorrect. But guess what they found? They found the Nemonidist cylinder. And that has all the history of all this on it. And it explains that Belshazzar was a second in command because, uh, and looking after Babylon because he was living in Arabia. So that's basically another thing where one of those so-called contradictions or discrepancies has been solved. And if you want proof, just go to the British Museum and have a look. So he, according to the Babylonian records, Belshazzar became co-regent or co-regent in the third year of Nabonidus' reign in 553 and continued on that capacity until the fall of Babylon in 539. So what's that? 16 years. Now, he made this huge feast. Now, why was he so confident in Babylon? Well, conservative calculations you know, from when they do their archaeology and stuff, they have shown that the outer walls are 27 kilometres long. So, you know, it's roughly 5K squared or a bit, bit more. Those walls were 7 metres thick. You're not going to knock them over. And they were 28 metres high, so almost 30 metres high. 
Now, these outer walls also had guard towers another 30 metres high. So you're up to 58 metres now, conservatively speaking. They could have been higher. And there's records that say that some walls were like 100 metres high. And the city gates were made of bronze. And there was a system of inner and outer walls and moats which made the city very secure. So if you got over the first one, you'd fall into deep water. How are you going to climb up another wall from deep water? No wonder the king was pretty relaxed. And an application here for us today, they drank wine, praised the gods of gold and silver, etc. And they're partying while a hostile army is surrounding the city. Now, what do people do today? Non-Christians, what do they do? They go around, they drink wine, they party, even though they know that judgment is coming. They think they have good defences, strong defences. They have money, power, fame, good health, wisdom, knowledge. But instead of seeking God, they seek pleasure. That's our Western culture. But no defence can keep God out. When it's time for judgment, watch out. Remember that pride comes before a fall. And... Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, there's an application for us here. Two is Ephesians 5.17-18. It says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So what is dissipation? Well, it's behavior which shows lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. It's senseless, it's reckless, it's it's basically stupid, okay? So, it's a lack of concern for the consequences of an action. You think about unbelievers, there's a lack of concern about their eternal future. They're living in a way where they're not thinking about the consequences of their lives, okay? And Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So if you want to find life and the path to life, then you need to find God. All other ways lead to death. Now, Belshazzar bringing the gold vessels out that had been stored away from the temple in Jerusalem, he's actually openly mocking God. Things weren't done by accident. He didn't run out of cups if you know what I mean. <laughs> he didn't say, oh, I've run out of cups. Where can we find some more cups? You know, No, he got them out to mock God. He's mocking the other gods. He's committing the sin of sacrilege. He's, it's mocking God. He's probably, from a human point of view, he's probably trying to boost morale. He's saying, look, to his leaders and that, we've defeated all these other gods. We're undefeatable. And they've actually found where this court might be. A large court, 50 by 170 feet, and it's decorated with Greek columns, and it's probably where that feast took place. Verse 5, In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the hand, and the king went from being really happy to really scared. And so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. So basically, he wet himself. That's what most people think. You know, it's just another way of saying he wet himself. Someone said, when Belshazzar suddenly saw a man's hand writing on the wall of his palace, he didn't need coffee to become sober. (laughs) And this is where we get the proverbial phrase of writing on the wall. And it refers to judgment. Your time is up. You are toast. (laughs) That's it. 
Now, for the unbeliever, the writing is on the wall today. Just like Noah warned people for 120 years before the flood came and destroyed them all, except for the eight in the ark, who found grace in God's sight and humbled themselves, so the church is or should be warning people, warning the world that Jesus is coming back, but not as a suffering servant, but as the Lion of Judah, who will be the judge, the righteous judge. And for those who refuse to repent, the lake of fire awaits them for eternity, simply because they have refused God's gift of forgiveness and redemption. So it comes back to the gospel. Jesus paid everyone's fine when he died for the sins of the whole world so that we could be declared innocent before the Father. All our sins are dealt with, paid in full, so that it's like we never sinned once we accept this gift. It's like we never sinned. We're justified. But it's a gift that must be received by believing and repenting. So I want to just try and explain to you what it means to repent. So you're walking down this beautiful road. And someone yells out to you, stop, there's a bomb down that road. And if you don't believe them, you will keep on walking. And if there's a bomb there, you'll blow up. However, if you believe that there's a bomb there, then you'll stop and you'll turn around and you'll get out of there as fast as you can. And you'll be telling people, hey, don't go down there. There's a bomb down there. It'll kill you. All right. So, you can see from that little story that what the person believed determined their behavior. Does that make sense? So what you believe determines what you do. So if we believe what God says about life and death, about heaven and hell, and good and evil, then it will show in what we do. So all we have to do is believe, but that belief has a consequence in our life. So People can say they believe, but if there's no repentance, it could be that they don't actually believe, they're just pretending. And notice how shallow the world's joy is. Here's this king, a thousand people, this massive party, and how long does it take for his joy, his exuberance to turn into despair and fear? Just a second. Just Whoa, what's his hand doing? Happy one moment? Wetting yourself in the next. Okay? (laughs) Fear. Now, underneath the apparent ease and happiness of those who belong to this world is a guilty conscience. Now, this guy, Belshazzar, didn't even know what the writing said. Why did he get all scared? Because he's got a guilty conscience. He knows. Okay? People in this world have all been given a conscience. It's God-given, but culturally defined or molded. Every person knows, deep down, that they will have to face God on Judgment Day. Now, contrast this temporary happiness that Belshazzar had with the joy that Jesus gives. And you find this in John 16.22. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. So, Jesus is talking to them before he was crucified, but he's going to rise again, they're going to see him again, And they're going to receive joy that no one can take from them. Now, why can't our joy be taken from us? Well, it's not from here, is it? Anything that the world gives us can be taken away from us because it's temporary. Okay, Everything in this this world is temporary. 
But anything that's from God is eternal because God is eternal. So what he gives us, he doesn't take away. It cannot be taken away. It's not of this world. It's of God. 1 John 2.17 says it's all passing away. For those who have been born again, the story is different. We have this joy that cannot be taken away. Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death, and now we have this joy that no one can take away. It's from heaven. So we as Christians should be the most secure people on the planet. We have everything and fear nothing, not even death. That's how it should be. We have everything in Christ in the heavenlies, not the temporary stuff, not the money and possessions and health and all that kind of stuff. God will give those things to us as he wills, but we have, like it says in Ephesians 1, all those heavenly blessings, Okay, the adoption, peace of past understanding, the joy, the love, all those things which God gives us and the world cannot take away. And I just want to remind you of that by reading a passage from Romans. It's Romans 8. I'll start at verse 31. It says, What shall we say about such wonderful things? As these. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. And then it continues in verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? The answer, of course, is no. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Now, the answer to that question, no. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed, Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Fantastic, eh? That's the hope we have. That's what the world cannot take away. So the world looks to shallow things, temporary things, anything that will numb the pain of emptiness and hopelessness that comes from being separated from God. That relationship was broken in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. So the world looks to circumstances to change the way it feels. But circumstances can change very quickly. But us as Christians, we don't really care about circumstances because we see the big picture, the eternal picture. We know what is coming and we are secure. We are loved, we are cared for, no matter what happens to us down here on earth. In fact, we can take joy in the circumstances because we know they are working for our good. Romans 8.28 so, verse 7, the king cried aloud to the, bring in the astrologers, you know, the magicians and the soothsayers, etc., and says, look, if you can tell me what this says and what it means, you get this huge reward. And you can be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why? Because 
Nabonidus was the first ruler, Belshazzar the second, and therefore the next in charge would be the third ruler. But, guess what? They couldn't do it. It says in verse 8 and 9, and the king's getting quite worried. Now the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen talks to them and says, hey, there's a guy called Daniel. And what does she say about him? What's her testimony about him? In whom is the spirit of the holy God? He has light, understanding, and wisdom. Light, the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar promoted him. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. So the queen is not Belshazzar's wife, but most likely his mother, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm assuming that she was converted when Nebuchadnezzar was converted. So when Nebuchadnezzar became a believer and humbled himself, she did too because she's not at this drunken party. She's off to the side. She's doing her own thing, probably disgusted at what's going on. Okay. And the queen refers to him as Daniel, his Jewish name, and showing respect for his faith and background, which is another reason I think that she might be a believer as well. So at this point, Daniel has been out of the public eye for 20 years. He's about 85 years old. So you imagine being, you know, Nebuchadnezzar dies and the new king gets all his favorite people in to be his advisors and stuff. 20 years goes by. What does Daniel do? I don't know what he's doing. But he's still praying. He's still preparing himself spiritually for the next time that God will want to use him. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter how long the gaps are. We need to realize that we are tools in God's toolbox. And he can pull us out when he needs us. So we might be a tool that God doesn't use very much. But we're still an important tool because when he needs it, that particular tool, it's got to be ready to use. Okay, So... Whether we're used every day or just once a year, or maybe which once in our lives, we need to be ready, available, and open to what God wants us to do. We need to be saying, I'm available whenever you want to use me. Just use me. And that's Daniel's mindset. Imagine that, you know, 20 years goes by and suddenly the queen says, Wait, come into the king. You've got another riddle to solve. So be prepared. Uh, Verse 13, then Daniel's brought in before the king, and this king doesn't know Daniel. He only just repeats what the queen says about him. And the king repeats his thing that you can have this robe of purple, a gold chain around your neck, and be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel says, oh, I've been so longing to have this purple robe. I love gold chains. Is that what he says? No, this world has no hold on Daniel. The riches, the glory... What does Daniel say? Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. That's the secret to living a godly life. Those things of the world that you think are important, they're not important to me. I want nothing to do with them. So the things of the world, as we grow closer to Jesus, they will have less and less pull on us. So Daniel's brought in before the king. Now, this is another little point. When everything seems great, when the party is going nonstop, God and his servants are mocked, neglected and hidden away. But when something goes wrong, guess who people turn to? 
They want someone to pray for them. They want some advice. Suddenly the Christians are the most important people. So the world mocks us, but when things go wrong, they need us, or at least look to us, for answers. And like Daniel, we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Verse 18, Daniel gives the interpretation and a rebuke to this nasty, prideful king. O king, Belshazzar, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor, and because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up, and whoever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory away from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. That's a stinging rebuke. Daniel is really brave. He's in the face of this king, and he just rebukes him point blank. Okay, So as Christians, our king is God, and we don't need to be scared of any other king. So we can speak the truth to anyone and everybody. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. So this speaks about his using the gold and silver cups in the temple as a premeditated act of defiance against God. It's him saying, ah, that God of Jerusalem, that temple, yet we defeated them. We're greater than them. And shaming them, shaming God. And then he finishes his, um, his rebuke by saying, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. So he holds our breath in his hand and he owns us. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. Why do people reject God? It's because they love evil. It's the only reason. And that pride keeps them from coming to God. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way in the field for seven years, but you didn't learn from his experience. So, should we learn from other people's experience? Yeah. God lets us see other people's lives so we can learn from their experiences. Someone said, if God held Belshazzar responsible for the ray of light which shone across his pathway, which was Nebuchadnezzar's example, what will he say to men living in the blaze of light which illuminates the world today? Today we have the church on every corner almost. We have the Bible readily available. We have the common knowledge that Jesus died and rose again. There's Christmas, there's Easter. There's a lot more revelation now than there was before. God is holding Belshazzar responsible for not learning the lesson from Nebuchadnezzar. How much worse is it going to be for people of our generation? who have all this. okay? And what does God say about the people of Capernaum and Chorazin? Woe to you, people of Capernaum and Chorazin, because if these miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented with sackcloth and ashes. 
So, God does hold us responsible to respond to what he shows us. Now, the fingers. The fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. So, from God. There's a couple of other examples in the Bible where the finger of God wrote, and that was Jesus when he wrote in the dirt. And remember they brought the the woman caught in the act of adultery and they wanted to trick him. If if he said free her, they would accuse him of being a lawbreaker. If he said stone her, he would no longer be the friend of sinners. But instead in John 8, Jesus stoops down, writes with his finger, the same finger that wrote the Ten Commandments. And he probably um, wrote down some of the things that his accusers were guilty of and they all walked away. And then he says, he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And they all left. So, what I want to point out here is that the writing on the wall, as Christians, doesn't apply to us. The writing that was written on the the list for us, our sins, the the list of things that we've done wrong in Colossians 2.14, it's all been nailed to the cross. It's been rubbed out by the blood of Jesus. The same hand that wrote on the ground the same hand that wrote the law, and probably the same hand that wrote in the plaster in Babylon. So the very hand that wrote against you was pinned to a cross for you. So God, Jesus, wrote the law, but then he paid the price for us breaking that law. And if we believe, we can be like the woman in John 8, and where Jesus says, you are free to go your way and sin no more. Now, verse 26, this is the interpretation of each word, uh, meaning God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. In other words, your number is up. Now, how do we know, was this prophesied? Yes, it was. We can read this in Jeremiah 27, verses 5 to 7. It says, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, by my great power and my outstretched arm, and have given them to whom it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and the beast of the field I have also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son. Notice that? Shall serve him, his son, and his son's son. So God has put a limit on how many generations it would be before Babylon was destroyed. Until the time of his land comes, and then many nations and great kings will make him serve them. So basically, Jeremiah is saying he's got three generations and that's it. Tekel, you've been found uh, weighed in the balances and found wanting. <laughs> his number was up, but his weight was down. He'd been given a lot of opportunity, but done nothing with it. And Perez, verse 28, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that happened that very evening. So why do nations collapse? The Medes and the Persians were clever, yes, but why did the nation collapse? Is because of moral decay. It fell from within. And you'll see that all through history. And it's happening to our own country. Our own country is collapsing because of moral decay. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, how long? Did the world's promotion last for? A few hours, and that's about it. So what the world offers is definitely not eternal. So that's why Daniel wasn't really interested in it. 
That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius and Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So, just what Daniel said happened. Now, Darius was a sub-king under Cyrus the Persian. He is referred to in secular history as Gabaru, G-U-B-A-R-U. So, if you want to, if you read about that. And, guess what? God had actually predicted that this would happen. I'm just going to read. One of the passages is Isaiah 45, 1-4. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to who? Cyrus. How long ago was this written? Six months ago? No, 200 years beforehand. All right. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the, the what? Double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it, this prophecy about Cyrus? Now, it's not just his name, it's about what happens. The double doors, the bronze and everything. I'll get into that in a minute. Before I do, this Cyrus, you could look at him as a picture of Jesus. He comes in and he takes over, he destroys, he defeats something that was considered unbeatable, impregnable. And Jesus did that. He defeated sin and death. And given to the Medes and Persians, uh, this is another fulfillment of prophecy. So the Greek historian Herodotus relates that the Persian king Cyrus conquered Babylon by diverting the flow of the Euphrates into a nearby swamp. This lowered the level of the water so his troops marched through the water and under the river gates. Now, this is going back to the previous passage in Isaiah. They would still not have been able to enter had not the gates of bronze of the inner wall been left unlocked and open. Why would a king who's under siege leave the inner gates open. It just doesn't make sense. But God said they would be open. He said, I will open the gates for you. So he just, when the river level went down, he just walked in. And there's two references that describe that, which I won't read this morning. Isaiah 44, 28 to 45, 7, and Jeremiah 51, 57, 58. So God opened the gates of the city of Babylon for Cyrus and put it in writing 200 years before it happened. This was before Babylon was even a world empire. This is just amazing. Now, we can look ahead. This is also a picture of the end times as well. And if you have a look at Revelation chapter 17, 18 and 19, the fall of Babylon happened very quickly. When Babylon falls in the end times, it again will be very quick. And there's a quote, Empires do not stand by human might, man-made machines and missiles. There is not a wall high enough nor thick enough to prevent a nation from falling. And God pronounces that nation's doom. Don't trust in your military. Don't trust in anything. If God isn't for you, then he's against you. And you're in trouble. Now, to finish with an application for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. 
So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. I love that phrase there. We fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen, the eternal things. Belshazzar thought he had it all, but he ended up dead. His bubble burst, his light went out, his hope evaporated. He ended up with nothing to show for his life, just emptiness. It's a wasted life. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus. And as the hymn says, And the things of the earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, is this an easy thing? No, but we have an example to follow, and that is Jesus himself. Last scripture. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, Now he is seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people, then you won't become weary and give up. Interesting, isn't it, how it says that? Think of all the struggles Jesus went through, and then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. So what's our main struggle? It's against sin, okay? Just remember that the closer you get to Jesus, the more you let his light shine into your heart, the more you love him, the less you will love the things of the world and the less draw, the less pull they will have on you. Okay, That's a secret. It's not about trying harder, it's about loving more. And remember that God's gift of salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. It's difficult to let go of the things of the world, and we need faith to persevere and keep our eyes on the eternal. Father, thank you for this chapter or this book, especially comparing Nebuchadnezzar to his grandson, probably uh, Belshazzar. Lord, one person is saved, one person is not. One person receives mercy, one person receives judgment, and it's all because they refuse to humble themselves. Lord, we're Christians, most of us here, and we still need to keep on humbling ourselves. When we repent, we are humbling ourselves. We are agreeing that what you say is right, and that we need your help, we need your power in our lives to be able to follow you. And Father, for those who are not saved, we just pray that they will come to the realization that their sin has separated them from God, that because they have broken God's law, the penalty of breaking God's law is death, and therefore they will spend eternity in hell, in in the lake of fire. But God, you've given us the way out. You came and paid the price for our sins. You were the sacrifice for our sins, the payment for our sins. So we can go out free and enjoy the life that you lived and you suffered for us in our place. So thank you for this substitutionary sacrifice where we get to enjoy life as being a child of God, free from the sins that we have committed and help us to love you for what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen.